at you here at the Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. All of my previous conversations on matters large and enduring are at hughforhillsdale.com. We've been, we got 300 of those up there. Dr. Larry Arn is back, president of Hillsdale College, as is his colleague, Dr. Khalil Habib. Last week, we gave you an introduction to Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America. This week, we're going to kind of do a uh, chapter-by-chapter quick look at the introduction, first three chapters. Dr. Habib, I'm going to start with you in the introduction. He really does lay out his project, and he asks people for a lot of indulgences because he He's obviously planning to take a long time at this, and I'm kind of surprised by the length that the French public was willing to go to put up with the study of their American. They're not even cousins, right? But it was a bestseller off. I mean, off the charts in France. To what do you put that? I think that's a great question. Um, In the introduction, he does a number of things. One, he he's trying to get the French to reconcile. And to, and to come to terms with democracy. It is the future, as far as Tocqueville is concerned. In fact, it's providential. To go against democracy, Tocqueville says, is to go against the will of God. So good luck trying to lift that. The, what he wants to show and how he gets the French audience interested is you just experienced a terrible revolution in which religion and politics seem to be incompatible. So you have people who are Christians who are wary of liberty, and then people who are partisans of liberty who can't stand or are suspicious of religion. What Tocqueville tries to do in the introduction, among other things, is to show that democracy is actually underwritten by God. So politics and religion are, in fact, in harmony. They weren't in France, but they are in America. And so by looking at America, we could see a path towards healing what took place in the aftermath of the French Revolution. The other thing that he wants to do in the introduction is, and then again, it comes out especially if you read, if you come to it through his book on the French Revolution, he's showing us the consequences of the rise of what he calls the quality of conditions, which is essentially the leveling of artificial hierarchies that had always put people into a caste system. He thinks that the spirit of democracy predates America. It predates the French Revolution. Uh, he traces it even at times, uh, well, ultimately to Christianity, but the gradual leveling of the feudal system and that there's nothing going to stop it. But he's really concerned about what will replace the checks and balances that that emerged during the, the feudal era you know, between the three estates. What will take place of the aristocracy in guiding democracy? He thinks that the aristocrats in France had contempt for democracy did not want to guide it. In fact, they wanted to crush it. And Tocqueville thinks this is a mistake. You can't crush it. And just like the religious and the freedom-loving French have to come to terms with the inevitability of democracy, aristocrats have to also come to terms with democracy and not have contempt for it, but show how to guide it. And that's what Tocqueville presents himself as, as a friend of democracy who's going to guide it and offer a a new science of politics for a new age. And that, that age is... What do you do when for centuries we had depended on institutions that organically grew out of the feudal era that prevented the centralization of government? And now we don't have those. He does not look to Rome. Gibbon is just a few years before him, who is endlessly fascinated with Rome, as many of the framers were. He looks to America. And Dr. Arn at the beginning, he says, and I like this. 
There are Christians, and they come in two kinds, good and bad. And there are people who love liberty, and they come in two kinds, good and bad. And he writes the bottom line. Liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. Doesn't that sound like Washington's farewell address? Yeah, and that points up something, right? I mean, uh, Tocqueville does not mention, I think there's not, uh, uh, Khalil can correct me, I think there's not a single mention of the Declaration of Independence in Democracy in America. That's correct. And it's a book Wow. it is a book that is deeply involved with uh, with uh, the question of equality. In the introduction to the to the uh, uh, the old regime, his book about the French Revolution and before, he, he says that he looked at all kinds of original documents, right, especially high public pronouncements, to under to capture the spirit of the old regime. And the book is a genius book, in my opinion, and it finds the causes of the French Revolution and its success in the old regime, that there were practices there. And it wasn't just that they tyrannized the people, it's that they subjected them in a way that made them vulnerable to centralized government, which I think, by the way, is the greatest political science teaching in, in Tocqueville, that you want to decentralize authority. But And so when you talk about George Washington, right, George Washington was an official. He was the official. And in his first speech, which was written for him by the author of the Constitution of the United States more than any other man, he says, our republic is founded in the, in the great fact, in the course and economy of nature, the indissoluble connection between virtue and happiness. So that's just Aristotle put into a political doctrine. And, and so the sources of that in America are very rich. And Tocqueville seems to me to want those things for America and for France, but he misses some of the sources of them in America. Or, or does, I, I got to ask this question of, of Dr. Habib. In the middle of the book one of Montaigne's essays, we're promised the apology of Raymond Simon, and it's not there. It's missing. It's a very famous omission. And there's a lesson to be drawn from it. Is the omission of the Declaration from Democracy in America, I didn't know about that until just now, is that significant in your view? Is that intentional in order to draw attention to it? Oh, that's a great question. Well, of course, Dr. Arne is correct. There is no mention of it. And it's a puzzle. You know, why does he do that? He's such a good observer. Um, how could he miss that? And um, and I think a clue, and this is just me speculating, um, is really provided actually, again, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but in his book on the French Revolution, if we remember that the audience of democracy is actually the French and not the Americans, Ameri- and because he always speaks of our, and look what we did, you know, we being the French. If you look at the book on the French Revolution, what Tocqueville essentially says is the French don't need any more ideas about rights because they don't have the character for it. They don't have the political experience for it. They've destroyed the institutions that, that, that support it, and they haven't had any experience in the practical governing of their own lives. That those ideas only bring out revolutionary spirit without any real experience. If you come to the omission from that perspective, then it looks like he's hiding from the French something that he doesn't think is really appropriate for them, and not so much 
uh, missing the cause of what what was what took place in America. Oh, interesting. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, yes, again, I, I do. Any, I don't have any proof of this. I'm, you know, the Tocqueville never explains it. But again, one of the reasons you asked me um, earlier, you know, how do you teach democracy now? And I said, well, now I teach it with the French Revolution, because I do think it helps to shed light. Then he backdoors his way to the secret of America's success by talking about its civic participation. And there you see the declaration in practice. You know, Dr. Orr, what do you think of that? He's hiding it from the French so that he can make it acceptable to the French. So I think it's uh, a brilliant argument. And, you know, Khalil's not dumb. Uh, I also think it, it uh, helps me amend a long criticism I've had of certain scholars that I very much admire in other respects, because they use Tocqueville today as a guide to how to talk to the Americans. And, and uh, you know, there is a strategy, you know, of some important and brilliant scholars, and conservative scholars for that matter, that we should uh, downplay the Declaration of Independence. Oh. And, uh, and they cite Tocqueville for that. But Tocqueville was in a different situation, and we're talking about a rhetorical matter, and uh, so, you know, well, that's, that, that's easy. That, that's just democracy. The, the declaration is strong medicine, too strong for the French who are enfeebled by the revolution, but exactly what America needed in its youth. That's, see, it, it ignores the prudence. Uh, you know, so Tocqueville comes in. Uh, so I guess every criticism that I have of Alexis to Tocqueville, which I've learned for 40 years from my teachers and my friends and from reading Tocqueville, it's always about that. It's about how. He can be read to mark an interruption in the great story of America, which story begins with the forming of a nation around the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the vindication of that nation in the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln and in the current struggle over what the country means. How interesting. Uh, that, that's a very interesting exchange, America. I hope you were paying attention to that. We'll be right back on the Hilldale Dialogue. a lot of spin on the news out there. Where do you hear the truth? Right here. As soon as Hugh Hewitt returns, this is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Khalil Habib and president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn. I quote, from Tocqueville's first chapter in Democracy in America, the Valley of the Mississippi is, upon the whole, the most magnificent dwelling place prepared by God for man's abode. And yet it may be said at the present, it is but a mighty desert. Obviously, he had not been to the Ohio River, uh, or if he had, he had considered it merely the headwaters of the Mississippi. But this is, I, I, I don't want to be hard on Alan Keyes. I'd forgot. This is a beautiful chapter. It's 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 magnificent. It's you know a Disney ride, Doctor Habib, through America. I I love it, and um, and I think it's a chapter that one should never skip when teaching the book. Uh, at first, you're wondering, you know, why on earth is he taking me on this geographic journey? Um, and then you realize that he's part of a tradition of political theorists who try to explain some aspects 
of the human character in relation to geography, but not, as Dr. Ern had pointed out earlier correctly, not, not to show that we are somehow determined by it, but, but how certain ideas and character can prevail over our geography. So I think Dr. Ern was spot on on that. But there's another passage in the chapter that you're referring to, if you, if you remember, the, uh, the tropics. You know, this yes. beautiful floral, this and that. And he says, and hiding underneath this veneer was death. <laughs> I remember yes. coming across that thinking, holy smokes, where did that come from? <laughs> I realized that in many ways, it's uh, a microcosm of his concern for the fate of liberty in an age of democracy. When we are surrounded by comfort and get too wrapped into the illusions of just beauty and harmony, death, a real threat to the fragility of life, lies hidden. And I think that, is, that helps to open up, in many ways, the second volume, where he's concerned how luxury and commerce can do to the human soul what a beautiful tropical region can do to our imagination. It can lull us into believing that what we're looking at um, is permanent, doesn't require our effort. And if you think about that chapter, it really is a celebration of how Americans come to an unforgiving locale and persevere. And they do so because they come to America with a certain character and a pioneering spirit. And he doesn't want to see that lost. And so I think that image of tropical happiness, you know, the illusion that marketers use all the time, you know, escape your job and come to the tropics, um, I think is a warning against uh, the dangers of apathy and getting too comfortable. Uh, th- that is why Dr. Uh, Dr. Richard Nixon told me in my first job out of college, he had to get out of California and go to New York because it was enervating. Dr. Arndt, I-, I like this first chapter as well because he deals with the Native Americans and he says about the tribes that they were destroyed by the arrival of the Europeans and that it was inevitable given the way the Europeans possessed the technology and the energy. But he also makes an argument that I think Modern people have to deal with it. The Indians occupied without possessing the land because agricultural labor is actually the possessory uh, function. That will be controversial, obviously, but Tocqueville doesn't ignore it. That's my point. He deals with it. Yeah, well, he, I mean, the best writing, and Tocqueville is among the best writing on this question, looks at the at the arrival of the Europeans to America and their supplanting of the Native Americans is a great tragedy. And it was a great tragedy on both sides. And the reason is the two ways of life were not commensurable. And they didn't know about each other, right? And they learned while they went. But like uh, I read a great book called The Ch- Children of the Summer Moon about the Comanche, who were the toughest of the Indians probably. And, and they, they ruled the prairie, the great middle of the country, most of it, for a long time. And there were about 30,000 of them. And that meant, you know, that's, uh, you know, a small town. Well, much bigger than Hillsdale. But um, so he, that means you could go into their territory for days and not encounter any sign of them, right? And that's, that's the way they lived. And it was a great way to live, right? What it wasn't was a way to control that territory when a bunch of people showed up who lived the way the American settlers lived. And, you know, that is, that is, the, geni- that is the genius of this chapter within a chapter. It explains what happened, and it was numbers and technology and agriculture. 
I'll be right back, America. Dr. Habib, Dr. Arn, as we go to Chapter 2 in Democracy in America. Stay tuned. It's about New England. Unfortunately, it's going to inflate their egos even more. You're in the middle of a nonstop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hilltale Dialogue is underway. We are doing Democracy in America. We did it last week. We're doing it this week. We're going to do it next week. I don't know the plan for next week. We'll figure that out. But I'll tell you right now, Chapter 2 is appropriate to our time because not only does Tocqueville denounce without equivocation slavery, saying it dishonors, labors, introduces idleness into society, ignorance and pride, luxury and distress. It enervates the powers of the mind. It benumbs the activity. The influence of slavery united the English character explains the manners and social conditions of the southern states. He also celebrates New England, and this is the dangerous part. The civilization of New England has been like a beacon lit upon a hill, which, after it has diffused its warmth around, tinges the distant horizon with its glow. The foundation of New England was a novel spectacle, singular and original. Dr. Aaron, we're, we're being real hard on the South here, and they deserve it for slavery, but I'm not sure about elevating New England to this pinnacle. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, New England changes, doesn't it? Uh, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I think it would have been very hard to live among the early Puritans. Because at least my sense of humor would get me in terrible trouble. Oh, you would be in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I'd get dunked or whatever they did to people. But then, you know, today, by the way, wouldn't it be hard to live among them? Oh. Uh, what one of the uh, one of the you know, I, and I mean the liberal places, right? I mean, one of the things that Tocqueville, one of the glories of Tocqueville, and they are very many, is this description of the fact that people get to govern themselves here, and that means as a practical activity. And so if you go about America in the last 14 months, one of the most dangerous and strange periods in our history, it's like uh, the, the temper of the place where you are gives it a political temper, gives it an entirely different appearance, nowhere more obvious than in the wearing or not wearing of masks. And... So, you know, Ann Arbor is 70 miles from here. And, you know, if three months ago you went walking around Ann Arbor in the daytime with a, by yourself, not close to anybody, without a mask, somebody would stop and harass you. I know stories of that. Now, you can walk around Hillsdale in the same month, and nobody's got one on. And so that's, you see, it's, and that means that uh, there remains, it's in peril, of course, but there remains some liberty for people to live the way they want to. And, and that's precious. And Tocqueville, and see, if you, go, if you go back, if you understand the peril of America, I, I think, Khalil knows more about this than I do, but I think that what he describes of what happened in France and the reason it went so wrong was that things had already been centralized to a great degree when the French Revolution happened. I want, I want Dr. Habib to pick up on that, but also on the Puritans and their excess. The little state of Connecticut's penal code in 1650 is not for the faint of heart. I mean, mask wearing <laughs> would be mandated, and you'd be dead if you didn't wear it with the Puritans, right, Dr. Habib? 
No, absolutely. You know, um, I when I teach the book, I, I used to use the Mansfield, um, and now I, I switch to the Liberty Fund because it's got the French on one side and the English on the other, but it has all of the footnotes that are never included um, in, in uh, Democracy in America. So I would recommend that. And if you look at the passages where he talks about uh, the Puritans and you look at the footnotes that the Liberty Fund includes, you know, in the footnotes, Tocqueville's very clear. I mean, they were uh, ferocious people, and uh, they were Puritan. I mean, he elevates them, of course, when he's talking about how religion and liberty came together. But in the footnotes, he points out at how inhumane some of their some of their punishments were. So they weren't entirely enlightened, uh, but he was definitely interested in how they managed to bring what the French were absolutely convinced could never be harmonized, uh, and that is religion and, and politics. And it was in the in English, in, in the New England townships that Tocqueville thought you can see an example of its success. I just want to point out that Dr. Arndt is right. I think the Puritans would have uh, burned him at the stake, but they haven't really changed in New England. They just are new kinds of Puritans. They would they would also burn him at the stake today for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> new kinds of Puritans. Well, that's, that's a, new kind of, yeah. a new kind of Puritans. Actually, yeah. I might kind of join in that, having taken enough slings and arrows. I might be, you know, here's some paper, here's some matches. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit, though, about where he talks about public education in this chapter, because both of you are educators and we are not fans of the public education system as it stands in America today. He praised it as he found it in 1735, though, uh, Dr. Habib. He thought it was just grand. Right. Well, but that's because when you look at who he's quoting, um, you know, in, in, this, in the chapter that we're referring to here, he's, he's talking about highly educated middle-class American Protestants who are still coming from England with habits of self-governance. So it's not like the Department of Education has been created. He's not celebrating that. He's really looking at how education can look like when it's decentralized, when it's in the hands of morally upright people who take very seriously political liberty. You have something like what we have with our charter schools. You have concerned parents who want to own the education and the moral foundation and the development of the character of their children and not uh, hand it over to a bunch of bureaucrats. I think that's what Tocqueville was uh, celebrating. So you're right. It's not the kind of public education that you would see today, but you don't really see public education today the way in which Tocqueville's looking at it. You're seeing bureaucratic education. You're seeing state education. For Tocqueville, public here in this context means self-governance. And by the way, we do not rehearse this, but that's exactly what I hoped you'd say, because it is not what these two things are not the same. What goes by public education and doctor, and maybe you want to expand on that in, in 1835 is township driven, taxed upon and built public education and nothing beyond the township. So so that that brings up, by the way, what I what is my favorite and I think the most important point in Tocqueville, and that is if you centralize the administration of things, you take people's lives out of their own hands, and that's despotic. And governing is something different. Governing is making common rules, uh, which, you know, should, by the way, be in their nature, simple and few and loose, for us all to live by, and we can all participate in the making of those rules, and then we can get on with living our own lives. Now, that means that the last thing on earth that should be centralized is schooling. That's right. Because the natural sovereign in a school 
is the school in the school in education is the school because that's where the parents and the teachers and the students are gathered and they know each other and they even love each other and they can run it the best and instead it's just a scandalous fact more than half the employees in public education in america today are not teachers and in the charter school system in our charter schools there's an advantage of eight to one, six to one to eight to one of teachers over administrators. So that I'm pretty sure that in 1835 that ratio obtained. In fact, there might not have been any administrators no. who did not teach. But, uh, but that, I have to, I have to ask Dr. Habib. Uh, I think Dr. Arn is slightly wrong here. Uh, that is the second worst thing that can happen: the centralization of education. I think the worst thing that can happen would be the centralization of religion. He points out that the framers and all of these early republics did not raise the curtain on the sanctuary. Uh, liberty and religion have to advance together and mutually support each other. But boy, are we supposed to leave religion alone in the state, Dr. Habib? No, that's true. But again, the, the danger in having sort of a state religion for Tocqueville, again, coming at it from the book on the French Revolution, is that the church, when it's independent, when it's separate, it can actually do the heavy lifting of holding people, including government officials, accountable for their behavior. And Tocqueville, and this is somewhat surprising for some, you know, when you read the Ancien Regime and the French Revolution, he says the single most powerful estate in preserving the liberty of France for centuries was the clergy, period, not even the aristocracy. And the reason is because it wasn't an established church. It was independent, and there was no conflict of interest. So the church, he said, could actually, because they have a higher authority in God, can hold kings accountable and aristocracies accountable and themselves. All of that, of course, is predicated on the purity of the religion and not the corruption of it. You still have to believe in those institutions. But for Tocqueville, you know, having a separation of church and state is not a necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's crucial. The danger is not having a church at all. And his biggest worry really is what happens if people become more and more apathetic and more and more disattached from active civic participation. Then you don't have a church, you don't have an active citizenry, and that's when you create the vacuum of power that the state will just fill and centralize around. Um, And that's his danger. But he really sought uh, he really thought that the Puritans had it right at that moment, and that, uh, and he was hoping that th- this would inspire not just the French, but also to remind Americans um, of the importance of the relationship between religion and liberty. And what, what does the Hillsdale Charter School Initiative, uh, just a bit off course, but I want to ask this, what do they do about religion in their public charter schools, Dr. Arn? They cannot teach it, obviously, but they cannot, I hope they are not well, hostile like, to it. It, it. It's actually not correct that you can't teach it. You can teach theology, right? Ah. And you can't have, what you can't do in a public school, and I even think that it's right that you can't do this, is you can't have worship services in a, in a public school because people don't all worship alike. You know, when you started on this line of thought, you, I thought you were about to declare that you'd become a Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, no. Uh, if, um, so... You know, I mean, you, you can't study philosophy. Forget theology for a minute. You can't study Aristotle or any of the great philosophers without getting some conception of God and the order of nature of which he would be or would not be part. And, and, uh, and so that's, you see, so 
but but the way and, and see it's probably you know I mean I I personally don't believe uh, that there be anything wrong at the state level with there being establishments of religion and I, most of the founders agreed with me about that not Jefferson and Madison but I think that they all agreed that that the public schools should not be sectarian and I and you know that means you don't worship in them you don't you do but you can figure out what God might mean, and there's lots of things to study about that. 100% when we come back, Why Lawyers Matter, Chapter 3 of Democracy in America. We'll find out why lawyers matter in just a moment. Uh, Tocqueville is uh, going to continue on for two more weeks. I've been working on the outline, so we're going to have two more weeks of this. And we probably could spend all year, but we're trying to get a project done. We're trying to reclaim for America, the entire understanding of why one wants to be proud and patriotic and understand where the country came from. We're up. We're bucking the tide of cancel culture. We're bucking the tide of anti-Americanism. We are standing very proud on the hill of American history as they do at Hillsdale College. So head over to Hugh4Hillsdale.com or go to Hillsdale.edu if you want the many, many part series on the founding, the many, many part series on the Constitution, the many, many part series. Wonderful stuff. Great way. Don't waste your downtime. Don't waste your vacation this summer. Get some downloads from hillsdale.edu. Through it, release. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. America. I hope you're enjoying our plunge in. I don't know what the plan will be after this week, but we're on Chapter 3 of Democracy in America, which celebrates lawyers. Actually, it celebrates the law of dissent, which is trust in estates and why it was vital that the English practice of entailment be curtailed in the United States. Dr. Habib, I did not expect to find uh, an endorsement of property law and uh, trust in estates in Tocqueville. I had forgotten if it was there or we weren't allowed to read this, but this is a celebration of lawyering in the field of estates. It is, but it's also a fulfillment of his promissory note earlier in the book to explain what the source of um, America's democratic society is. He says it's a combination of material and intellectual circumstances. Now he's getting into the material. In the United States, uh, you don't have law of inheritance, which means that aristocracy can never in any meaningful way take root. Um, he thought that in the South, in spite of the pretensions of having some kind of aristocracy, they had slaves and they had some pretensions to aristocracy. He said, if you don't have laws protecting uh, the inheritances, you're going to have a democracy. You're not going to have an aristocracy. Now, the reason why he celebrates this is because he is at the end, um, sympathetic to democracy. I think he thinks that it will open up avenues for human greatness uh, based on virtue, but of course it can also uh, harm that as well. But the reason why he's supportive of the lawyers in the United States and also the jury system, among other things, is that he thinks that uh, the lawyers do have a somewhat of an aristocratic feature to them. They have to be educated. They have to be versed in the law. They can also be educators um, to the, to the, for the public, including the jury system. He says when you're judged by your peers and you're in a courtroom, you're going to have to learn something about your Constitution, something about due process, something about uh, proof and the burden of proof, and something about your rights. And so he saw the jury system and the legal profession 
as mini boot camps, so to speak, of what it means to be in part of a Republican government and what it means to be a citizen. And it doesn't mean uh, the idea that uh, your birth somehow determines your fate as it does in aristocracy, but rather your virtue does. And so he was all in favor of laws that would uh, prevent the, the emergence of an aristocracy. Oh, he celebrates that it took 60 years, only 60 years to destroy great land at his states. Dr. Ron, I want to close this hour by reading, the sons of opulent citizens become merchants, lawyers, or physicians. Most of them lapse into obscurity soon thereafter. I know of no country, he writes, where the love of money has taken stronger hold on the affections of men and where the profounder contempt is expressed for the theory of the permanent equality of property. Here, wealth circulates with inconceivable rapidity and experience shows that it is rare to find two succeeding generations in the full enjoyment of it. He is happy about that. Uh, I don't think he foresaw the concentrations of wealth which would evolve that we are now burdened with, but he liked the great middle class. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, freedom. So, you know, commerce, uh, that, that passage and others... Uh, see, Tocqueville was an aristocrat, right? He grew up, he grew up the way my wife grew up. He has manners. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so he comes over here and we're rustic. It, it, you should, people should read The Gilded Age, a, a novel, you know, 40 years later than Tocqueville, 50 years later by Mark Twain. And in there, uh, he, he, there's an English lord who comes over here in disguise. And he is shocked when they're in a boarding house and somebody can't pay the bill. And so the landlord, landlady, goes around the dining table because you get food along with your room. And she's ladling soup. And she comes up to the guy who hadn't played his bill. And she starts to ladle and then she doesn't. And then she skips him and she goes back. She just tantalizes him about his dinner, and in the end, he doesn't get his dinner till he pays the bill. <laughs> now, that, that's what Tocqueville was talking about, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, and, so, so it's a great celebration of the American way, but it also leads to why maybe, Dr. Habib, we got about a minute left, why the French have thought so low of us for so long. <laughs> well, yeah, well, you know, Tocqueville accuses the French of essentially being snobs. Uh, you know, he, he praises England for being the first place where people could marry out of classes. When you think of Jane Austen's novels, it's a celebration of people like Mr. Darcy marrying someone in the lower classes. He says the French have nothing like that, and that there's no reason for them to be that way other than that they're just a bunch of snobs. Um, in America, he praises that middle class and the commercial spirit because, like Aristotle, he thought that a healthy and very vast middle class can temper the extremes of the super poor and the super rich. So there's some really interesting Aristotelian flourishes in Tocqueville that I think would be worth discussing in a future show, perhaps. Well, we are. I'm going to alert the audience next Monday what our plan is for attacking democracy in America. The introduction last week and the first four chapters this week, well, that could be three years in this, but I don't think they want to do that. So I'll ask Dr. Habib for a plan and Dr. Arn for his consent, and we will be back with more Democracy in America. My revenge on Alan Keyes uh, is underway. Uh, Dr. Arn, Dr. Habib, thank you. 
both. Don't go anywhere, America, except the Hillsdale.edu. They're the best sponsor any radio show ever had, and all of our conversations are collected at HughForHillsdale.com. And if you want to save your college, soon-to-be college student from ruin, send them to Hillsdale. Thank you, America. Thank you, Adam and Dwayne, Harley and Ben. I'll talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.